Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Chris, I want to talk to you about the weather today. I hear it's all oh. sunny and warm where you are. You are just basking in the sunlight. Yeah, I've got my shorts and T-shirt on and uh, got the sun cream out. Uh, although I might really need that because I'm going to see a lot of radiation coming back off the ground because the ground has become suddenly much more reflective than it should do. I'm looking out over a very, very snowy Cambridge this morning. Uh, the temperature's really low. It's been sort of minus 5 in some parts of the country, minus 10 this mm. week. In some other places, minus 15. And we've had a week of snow. Hmm. and last night it snowed again and the kids love it of um, course they do <laughs> people who have to go to work love it less uh, but i had a great time last weekend i made an igloo actually uh, the snow was just perfect for um making the making the bits stick together in just the right way and we actually had a, a almost complete igloo outside our house um and then the temperature went up and it sort of slum- slumped mm. a bit um, but I now have the world's biggest snowdrift, or what appears to be the world's biggest snowdrift, outside my house. And you can see it as you come down the road. You think, oh my God, what the <laughs> hell is going on inside those people's houses? They've got half the half the snow in the world outside their house. Sounds like fun. Sounds like fun. It's I fun. Heard, it's I, great fun. I heard uh, John Robbie speaking to the uh, in the UK report, and uh, Adam was talking about ice rain. I thought, what what is that? Hailstorm, snow, ice rain. What's that? Well, this is an interesting bit of physics and chemistry, actually, because although people think that water freezes at naught degrees, and indeed naught degrees is the temperature at which both ice and water can both coexist, water doesn't start freezing until a much lower temperature. And in fact, if you have pure water, it can go as low as minus 40 or even minus 50 degrees C, before it will begin to freeze into ice crystals. And you'd say, well, why is that? What's the difference there? Well, what happens is that In order for ice to start forming, it needs something to start forming on. That could either be another ice crystal, or it could be a speck of dust or an irregularity on a surface. And this Mm -hmm. is a principle of what's called nucleation. In order for the ice to be stable and for the uh, water molecules to line up in a way which is energetically favourable, you need something for them to start, like a seed. Now, it's possible for water up in the high atmosphere to be in a pure state because it's evaporated from water on the ground surface Mm -hmm. and for the temperature to become really very low before that water actually starts to freeze. And so it can exist at very low temperatures of minus 40 up in the atmosphere and then begin to fall down towards the earth. Now, if the air temperature on the way down remains very low, rather than that very cold water warming up on the way down towards the ground and then landing as nice warm water, what can happen Mm -hmm. is that it remains at a very low temperature all the way down and then it hits something on the ground surface and that hitting something provides the seed crystal or the nucleating event that means that this water immediately freezes. And you sometimes get this on the road and it makes driving very dangerous because you'll be going along the road and the thing that it hits is your windscreen Mm -hmm. and your windscreen is slightly dirty, slightly irregular surface and also cold and zap. The water lands, spreads out into a big pancake and instantly freezes. And so you can end up with a thick layer of ice across your windscreen almost instantly and you can't just turn the wipers on to get rid of it. And it does cause accidents um, and it's very dangerous. But it's a very interesting part, bit of physics at the same time. Very interesting indeed. Now, Chris, I have a question for myself. 
everybody tells me that cats can tell, they can detect when you don't like them. That's why they all over you. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, that's exactly how my husband reacted. I'm not a fan of cats for reasons I won't get into. So two days ago, I was at my creative writing class uh, in the evening. There were about 16 of us in the class, 16 of us sitting around a big dining room table. And this cat came from nowhere and it was on my chair and pushing the chair and hitting the chair. And then there's this other photographer that we work with here at Prime Media and I've done a lot of photo shoots with him and he's got a lot of cats he teases me a lot because there'll be like nine people in the room and the cat will come for me is there any truth to that i don't know about the cats necessarily being attracted to you but cats definitely manipulate people and they learn whom they can manipulate there's a lady who is based in uh, the uk and she published a paper a couple of years ago and what she showed is that cats add to their mewing sounds additional frequencies of sound which are the same frequencies that correspond to the sounds a crying baby makes but they only do this when they want something she says she was inspired to do the work because her cat used to keep scratching on her door to wake her up to go out in the middle of the night mm. and she thought as she was sort of coming half awake when the cat was doing this that it sounded different than when it was purring during the day so she decided to make some recordings and she made recordings of the cat's noises that it made at these different times analyzed them spectroscopically so in other words you can see the audiogram of the uh, sounds that the purr corresponds to what frequencies are in there and then she uh, played the sounds to a whole bunch of human volunteers and asked them which ones they found more arresting or more attention grabbing or more aggravating and which ones they were more likely to ignore and what she found is that the ones that everyone thought most annoying, most aggravating, most arresting, all had these additional frequencies of around 300 hertz mm -hmm. that the cat was inserting into its purrs, and they all corresponded to the time when the cat wanted something. And when the cat didn't want anything, it didn't add these sounds in. And so she thinks that the cat uh, do this in order to get our attention and make us do things, but they also learn that this works for them, so they do it more, and they're effectively training their owners. You think you own the cat? No. No, I own you. The <laughs> cat owns you. <laughs> It's very interesting. Okay, we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567, Our lines are open. Any science-related questions, join us. We're stripping science down to its bare essentials. We start with you. Selma, you are calling us from Tableview. Good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Reedy. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to ask your guest, how come that people all around the world have different accents? That's very interesting. Thank you very much, Selma. Thank you. Uh, hi, Selma. It's probably exactly the same reason that people all around the world look different. And historically, when it was very hard to travel, if I wanted to get to Cape Town on the boat a um, hundred years ago, it was a very long sea journey that would have taken me quite a few months. To go to Sydney in Australia would have taken me six months or maybe even a year, depending upon who I travelled with. Nowadays, you just mm -hmm. go on British Airways and it takes three years. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but, oh, the, but, but the the answer is that this had an isolating effect on populations and communities, and it meant that people didn't travel very much because travelling was hard, it was dangerous, much like today, really, And <laughs> but, but we just do it faster. So people were less mobile. And if you have people being less mobile, then you've got bottlenecks of populations. And so 
cultures and behaviours and also genes tend to enrich in certain areas because people are not carrying those genes and they're not carrying those behaviours so far afield. And this means that certain behaviours tend to be concentrated. Mm -hmm. And the way that humans behave, we are a social animal, we rely on and we love to be with other humans. We're not um, loners, some species are, we're not, and because we are this sort of pack animal type thing, we all try to fit in socially, and the way we fit in socially is by all subscribing to a, a common set of values or laws or behaviours, so that we recognise that we're all part of the same local family. And accents and imitation will probably come out of that to a certain extent because if new members come into the community they adopt the behaviours and practices of the local community and as children are born they are brought up by their parents and so they imitate and learn from their parents and so if one parent sounds a certain way then the children will imitate that mm. and so you will find you get these behaviours that emerge in different geographical areas Nowadays it's interesting because we're very mobile and the things that led to this distillation of certain characteristics and behaviours in geographically isolated places, those barriers are breaking down because people travel, they travel for work, they travel for pleasure, they move to new countries. And so the thing that made people in the far north, in the, in the west, staunchly white and the people in equatorial Africa very black, those sorts of things are beginning to change because the... Uh, genes that lead to those things are beginning to dilute out around the world. Um, it'll be interesting as a genetic experiment and a behavioural one to see how accents and practices change over the next 15 years. The internet is doing a huge amount. There was a study that got published uh, a few years back looking at how people speak in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. um, the Glaswegians have a very characteristic uh, Scottish accent and they have found that uh, the way in which some of the words are being spoken has changed very dramatically and has begun to reflect the way in which people speak in London and not the Queen's English so much as East End Cockney English of the kind you see on trashy soap operas. <laughs> and uh, there is a suggestion amongst psychologists and people who study linguistics that listening to these programmes makes people change the way they speak and... I often notice that when children are uh, watching a lot of cartoons, which often have American accents uh, on the cartoons, the children will often play with an American accent because they're just imitating. And I think that's, that's really how it happens, Selma. Okay, thank you very much, Selma, for asking that. And of course, we are a perfect country for anyone who wants to do any research on accents and how we express <laughs> ourselves with all this diversity. Mervyn, Paulus, Raymond, stay on the line. I'm coming back just now. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Mervyn in Rosebank, good morning. Hi, Reedy. Yes. My question, my question for Chris is in respect of grey hair. From my observation, I've noticed that more younger people seem to be getting grey hair sooner. Uh, sooner. Uh, and, and my question is twofold. Is, is this actually true? And two, is it reversible? Uh, when I mean that, I know you have uh, hair dyes, but is there anything that we can do genetically or in any other way to, to overcome that? Okay. Hi, Mervyn. I haven't noticed this, and I haven't seen any reports to suggest that people are going greyer younger. Maybe it's just that they look long younger for longer, so they get away <laughs> with looking like they're actually younger. That might well be part of it, actually, that um, people stay looking slightly younger for longer, and that's what contributes. Uh, the reason people go grey, of course, is that in the hair follicle, which is the little cluster of stem cells in the, in the scalp, in the skin that makes the hair filament, there is also a collection of cells called melanocytes. They're cells that make melanin, and as the hair filament is being made, the natural colour of hair being white, 
the melanin, the same dark stuff that makes skin dark, is added to the hair and it gives the hair a dark colour. And the benefit of doing this, of course, is that then you have a dark UV absorbing layer over the top of your head. And since your head is going to receive the greatest incidence of UV rays from the sun, it gives you that additional layer of protection on the top of your head. Um, in terms of restoring melanization mm. to hair, there is no current way to make those melanocytes switch back on once they peg out. They give up the ghost at variable ages, and there seems to be a genetic component to this. Some people go grey very young, some people keep their melanocytes pumping out melanin into their hair until they're in their 90s. Mm -hmm. So we don't know why that happens, but there's currently no way to restore that behaviour. There are a few isolated reports, though, of people who've had things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy, and in those individuals, patches of hair can go black again, or hair can be can change colour. And it may be that in some way that the genes which were controlling the melanization process and have turned off these cells cause the cells to come back to life or to come out of senescence. But we just don't know, and the case report numbers are so small that it's very hard to draw any firm conclusions. Mm. And the belief where I grew up, I don't know about anywhere else, Chris, was that if you, are, you have grey hair as a young person, you're going to be rich. And uh, I didn't must have, have... Yeah, must have a very demanding wife then. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> okay, let's go to Paulus in Edenvale. Hi there, Paulus. Hi, Rudy, how are you doing? Fine, fine, thank you. Yes, your question? Yeah, really, deja vu. You know, um, I just want to try and find out how realistic that is. You know, I'll tell you why. You know, sometimes it feels like you're sort of ahead of time. You, you indeed you feel that you've been through that sort of situation before as you feel what you're feeling. Okay, so you but want to know the scientific explanation for deja vu. Part of it, really, you know, yeah, yeah. Because uh, okay, all right, Chris, haven't we had this question before? Mm. No, I'm, I'm well. Never mind. Uh, other people will. Get <laughs> oh <it>. no, <laughs> <laughs> bit okay. slow. Bit slow. Um, we don't know about about what causes this, but it, it definitely occurs in a whole range of people, and many people who say they get sleep-deprived will say that they have episodes of it. We know that the brain stores memories, and it stores them along a timeline, and there is a mechanism for knowing that I got up this morning, and after I got up, I cleaned my teeth, after I went in the shower, and then I, and then I went and had some uh, meetings, and you know, so you have a map of your day, and then that slots into a map of your year, and so on, and we have a way of relating when events happened on a sequential timeline. Um, we have models of how that might happen psychologically, but no one knows for absolute sure. And it may be that with deja vu, you uh, either distort that timeline, and so a memory that is real um, gets thought of as happening in the wrong time in the day, so you think you've experienced it before you actually have. Or another idea is that the way in which memory works is that it's rather like a giant library with books on the shelf. And when you want to retrieve a memory, you go to the card index and you look up what uh, cards there are for where the books are. And you pull out the card and it says, oh yes, the memory for that is there. And it directs you to which shelf you have to go to to get that book out. Mm -hmm. And it might be that with deja vu, someone has inserted a card into the card file telling you there is a memory for something when in fact that memory doesn't actually exist. It's a mistake. So you think you've seen this thing before, but in fact it was just a random error in the brain thinking this has happened before and it hasn't. And it may be that when you get stressed or tired or certain drugs and certain conditions can trigger this to happen mm -hmm. more often. Um, but it, it's, it's relatively rare on the day-to-day -day basis, otherwise we'd all go nuts. But it does tend to happen in little blips when you get tired and stressed. Okay. Uh, Raymond in Midrand, good morning. Morning, how are you ready? Fine, thank you. Your question? I'm fine. Uh, something strange just happened uh, on Sunday. Actually, it's in regard to my coffee table. It's a glass coffee table and it's very thick. 
all of a sudden it just exploded uh, without anyone hitting it or whatsoever happened. It just exploded. I just wanted to know, is there any uh, scientific explanation? The glass table exploded. Okay. Mm. Yes, well, I think, I mean, I don't know for sure, but we we hear this occasionally happening, happening with windows and things as well. And what's likely in this circumstance is if something doesn't hit the glass, which is the most likely reason, that there is a uh, loading of the glass because of the way that the table is constructed or because of temperature, there is expansion or contraction of the glass and this applies a force to the glass. And the thing about glass is when it's under compression it's quite strong but when it's under tension or when it's got a, a force applied across like a shear this uh, tends to open up cracks in the glass which then propagate through the glass and it fails very quickly and I suspect that there was either a thermal effect or there was an underlying kind of little niggle breach starting to form in the glass and maybe there was thermal expansion or the way in which the coffee table was positioned on the floor was loading the glass and then some thermal expansion or contraction kicked in and it caused the glass to change shape very subtly altering the loading on the glass and then it just just exploded because you get this very rapid failing of the glass because once it goes in one place the loading changes elsewhere in the glass and again this then propagates around and, and all of the forces become very very strong all over the place and, and it smashes the glass up i mean it's a, a slightly um loose answer but that's probably what's going on i think sorry raymond you're gonna have to buy a new one and i hope it doesn't <laughs> explode <laughs> yes. this time better luck buy a wooden table next time i think that's the, the other piece of advice tanya in mohali city hi Hi, good morning, Reedy. Hi, Chris. Mm-hmm. I want to know, um, is it true that our gene pool is becoming depleted? I mean that by way of fact that more and more people are being born with um, cancer genes and with um, diabetes. Is it true the more people are on Earth, the more we lack inbreeding? Um, well... I think it's probably the reverse, that the more people there are on Earth and with medical interventions and things like that, we're more likely to have a range of different genes in circulation, not fewer. The diversity has has been changing ever since humans evolved. Um, if you look around the Earth, you'll see the greatest diversity is in equatorial Africa, and that's probably where humankind was born anyway. And as you go away from Africa, you get lower and lower levels of um, genetic diversity but these days we've got people moving around the world and you've got people who are in China who now fly to the west and then they have have a family in in London or something and so Chinese genes come to London and English genes go to South Africa mm. and all this kind of thing and you've got such a big mix-up going on that I think the diversity is, is certainly not shrinking because once genes are in circulation as long as they stay there then um, there, there shouldn't be any loss of diversity um, in fact and as I say because of medical intervention I would argue that probably we're keeping some genes circulating at higher levels than they would otherwise do. So I think probably the status quo is either stable or we're actually increasing our diversity at a slow rate. Mm-hmm. Somebody wants to know in this SMS, what are the benefits or disadvantages of being a blood um, O-type blood? Well, if you're group O negative blood type like me, what this means is that your blood cells have no chemical markers on the surface of them that people who have either group A or group B blood, which are the other two main blood groups, uh, can react to. Because blood cells have either uh, an A molecule, a B molecule, or an A and a B molecule on their surface. And in the bloodstream are antibodies which will bind to those markers, A or B, but you won't have antibodies to the marker that's on your own cells. So if you want to give blood to somebody, if you are group A, you have to have A blood or you have to have O blood. 
because in your bloodstream there are antibodies against B and so on. But if you're group O, because your cells don't have any of these markers on the surface, you can give your blood to anybody because although they have antibodies in their bloodstream, your cells have got no anti antigen on the surface for those antibodies to lock onto, so you won't cause a transfusion reaction or a transfusion problem and um, agglutination in that person's bloodstream. So group O is regarded as the universal donor. Mm -hmm. All right, Chris, have a lovely, lovely weekend, and I hope you survive the snow. Oh, I'm going to go make another Wrigley this weekend. Good, better luck this time. I'll send you a, a photograph. I'd love that. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>